0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... We generally call it the catastrophe because we
1: feel like it wasn't a riot. We didn't. We were not the perpetrators. We were the victims. (laughs) But it took 80 years to get the state of Oklahoma to acknowledge that. (laughs)
2: The Tulsa Race Massacre is
1: believed to be
2: one of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history. From May 31st to June 1st in 1921, as many as 300 people were killed,
1: hundreds were injured, and thousands of buildings were destroyed. On June 1st, they began to systematically destroy neighborhoods, and they had airplanes dropping things down, on people's houses, and they had made up their minds to clear the entire area of black people. It started after a
2: newspaper reported a black man tried to sexually assault a white woman. Though it's still uncertain what exactly happened, many did not believe that story. The Oklahoma Historical Society said the most common explanation is Dick Rollins stepped on Sarah Page's foot when he entered the elevator, causing her to scream. A group of armed black men went to the courthouse to offer help protecting Rowland once they heard talks of lynching. A crowd of white men was also on the scene. A shot was
1: fired and the riots began. My parents were very distressed because here they are with five kids and the schools had been, I went to Dunbar School and that was reduced to just rubble. I mean, they blew it up. Crowds of white
2: rioters went to the Greenwood District known as Black Wall Street. It was home to an affluent African-American community with banks, hotels, theaters, and new homes.
1: They took my eight-year-old brother too, where they were holding all the black men. And we didn't know because we lived on one side of town and they lived on the other. We thought they were locking up the non-blacks too. But it so happened that it didn't occur that way. What they did was to disarm and lock up all black men. And then they said to the mob, there's nothing out there now but women and children so you can do whatever you wanna do. And that was when the real terrible things started to
2: happen. It ended when the city was placed under martial law and National Guard troops were deployed, but Black Wall Street was devastated. Survivors never received compensation for what they lost.
0: on this ironic Memorial Day, when so many race crimes against its own people in this country have never been remembered, a look back 100 years ago at the buried history of the Tulsa Race Massacre and that Memorial Day weekend and the white assaults on that prosperous black community, including the government bombing and incineration there and the buried history of missing black bodies back then, still unrecovered today, and a Memorial Day weekend, again ironically, and which culminated on June 1st, when that city, Tulsa, had should instead be honoring the many black veterans of World War One who lived in that community, and instead those veterans had to take up guns against their own government to protect their lives, their families, their businesses, and their community. And director China Robinson has released a dramatic short feature about the Tulsa Massacre, Greenwood, the destroyed Black Tulsa community where it all went down a hundred years ago. First, some scenes from Greenwood, then China Robinson phoning in from Dallas. One day when the glory comes, it will be
3: They're coming to Greenwood. We're not running this time, not without a fight. What is it? The boy is on us. We're all he has. We're all we have. Hey, they're killing people out there. This is real. This is our home that we built. This
0: is Greenwood. Surely that's what fighting for. I'ma
2: keep on running cause the winner don't quit on themselves.
0: This Memorial Day weekend signifying the 100th year commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre, what can you say about this horrific event as the choice for your first film, your dramatic short Greenwood?
4: I believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed that they are having so many events and they're finally recognizing that this moment in time happened. Um, when I learned about Greenwood, I had never even heard of the the town. I had never heard of the you know what happened, and it just so happened that I was touring in Oklahoma with um, a stage production that I had written and I was directing, and someone approached me and asked if um, why didn't I go to Greenwood to put the, the show on, and I had never heard of it, and I did research, and nobody that I spoke to knew about it. No, no one knew what had happened, no one knew Greenwood even existed. So between then and now, and it's only been a few years, so many people are talking about it, and so I'm really excited about this weekend and all the events surrounding it, all of the press and attention that um, Greenwood is finally getting.
0: And what do you hope this buried history enlightens audiences in the present time about the past?
4: Well, I think people forget that this rugged past and all of this um, racial disparity happened not hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but, I mean, we're talking just a hundred years ago this happened, and we're still seeing... Some of these same things, you know, not on the level of Greenwood, of course, but you know, it's something to have a conversation about. We can't just sweep these things that are happening under the rug and saying, you know, but our our country, um, you know, it's, it's we don't have these issues in America. You know, you really can't say that because we've always had issues with race in America, and so I think by all of these events happening, and people really learning about it finally, um, I think we're able to say, wow, this ugly thing really happened, and we can acknowledge that, and now, like, let's rebuild together. And so I'm I'm happy that it's not just one group of people or one community that are recognizing what happened, but everybody, all colors, all backgrounds, all genders, Everyone is recognizing these things are happening
0: and these things have happened. Anne Greenwood is now screening free on YouTube and will be speaking further with China Robinson on a future show about another film she has coming out in June about domestic violence, No Ordinary Love. And now on Arts Express, the only thing I can say about my movie is that even if you don't like me, it's worth watching just to see David Lynch and David Bowie. Multiple award winning rock musician, composer, performer, and activist Moby is our guest this week on the occasion of the release of his musical documentary, Moby Doc. First, some scenes from Moby Doc, then Moby. We think that if we have the right amount of money.
5: If we have the right amount of recognition we'll find perfect human happiness. But I tried and it didn't work. My life as a musician has taken me to a lot of very odd places. I grew up with two very angry parents who were screaming at each other and drinking. At an early age, I found music. And then there was this day when I learned how to mix two records together. It was like magic. In 1990, I put out a song called Go. I thought it was fantastic. And a lot of other people thought that too. (laughs) All of a sudden, I had a big hit single, and every day I drank more. I started doing drugs. I was out of control. Then I learned my mom died, and I missed her funeral because I was in bed, drunk, passed out. Everything I'd ever wanted had been given to me, and I'd never been more depressed. Deep down, we assume that if anyone looks too closely, they'll be repelled. I was working on this album, Play, and it just sounded terrible to me.
6: Slowly but surely, everybody who discovered the music felt like there was something special there.
5: It started off small, and then it just kept selling more. I was able to take the fear and make it beautiful. None of this was expected. music has been baffling, confusing, but wonderful. It sounds like hyperbole, but music saved me. Oh,
1: in
0: this darkness, my way. And now here's Moby phoning in from L.A., but first, some of his music live from extreme ways Thank you. To our show.
5: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, first, what can you say about your latest album being released the same day as Moby Doc and any new and different directions you're taking your music and your creative vision?
5: Well, the record is quite a lot different than anything else I've made. Uh, I guess the easiest way to describe it is it's an orchestral greatest hits. Um, So I did my first ever orchestral show in Los Angeles about four years ago with the L.A. Philharmonic. And I got approached by Deutsche Grammophon to basically turn that show into an album. And so it's it's so elaborate. I mean, there's drummers and percussionists. There's a 130-person orchestra. There's string quartets and brass sections, and there's a gospel choir, and so many different vocalists. I mean, everybody from... Chris Christopherson to Jim James, uh, Mark Lanigan, um, I mean, Dietrich Haddon. It's just this very eclectic group of people. But I guess, again, the best way to describe it is an orchestral greatest hits with a whole lot of different singers.
0: And your documentary presents many of the traumas you faced along the way and your persona, Moby, and his connections to Melville tracing your ancestry back to Herman Melville. So who would you say, then, is your Ahab?
5: Um, I mean, you could almost look at it <laughs> in a sort of, and this is going to sound very grad studenty of me, so I apologize, but it's, there's almost a sort of like a Freudian existential quality to that. What I mean is, like, my Ahab has largely been me, you know, and... The mistakes that i 've made, the shortcomings in my life, um, the wrong assumptions i 've made has basically been that Ahab within me you know the the same way Ahab and Moby Dick is essentially an allegory or metaphor um, for humans trying to control the uncontrollable universe to try to you know to try to dominate the undominatable universe. And so like, I think that my Ahab has been me essentially trying to, to do that and, you know, to trying to beat into submission the parts of me that, you know, it has been either ashamed of or just thought that it needed to be rid of.
0: In your negotiations between the celebrity and the human being, do you feel you've made any progress in that regard between the two and through this documentary?
5: Um, I hope so. I mean, there's there's an inherent, there's a very confusing dialectic uh, that exists when you're a public figure with the same name as who you are as a private figure. And I think a lot of us find that very challenging, um, especially if who we are as a public figure has an autobiographical component. And what makes it especially challenging is... When people you've never met love you as a public figure, you, you as a private figure take that as a degree of validation. But then when those same people hate you, you, have to, you, you're suddenly scared. You're like, oh, well, when these strangers loved me, I felt great, but now they hate me and I feel terrible. And ultimately, you have to realize that the public figure and the private figure are two very different people even if they share the same name and the same likeness.
0: And speaking of which, you've been targeted quite a bit by the press. So why have you come back and opened yourself up for more attacks from the media?
5: Uh, I mean, I have no complaints or criticisms. I mean, I guess the only criticism I would have is, like, for example, about four years ago, I wrote an op-ed uh, it was got placed in the Wall Street Journal, and it was about the food stamp program, because at that time Trump was president, the Republicans controlled both you know the House and the Senate, and they were talking about ending or seriously curtailing SNAP, you know what we used to call food stamps. Because I I grew up very poor, you know I grew up on food stamps and welfare, and so I wrote this op-ed, and I got attacked for it. And at some point when I was being attacked for it, I realized that no one had actually read it because it was behind a paywall. So what I will say is that people are very quick to attack when they haven't actually seen or when they don't know about the thing that they're attacking the person for. Like that seemed very odd to me. People were so outraged. And I started, you know, I read a few comments and I realized, oh no one's actually read the the op-ed. They're just angry. And but again, I can't complain and what it's taught me, like being attacked for many things over the years, what it's taught me and it's a painful lesson, but a very valuable one is my daily life is not affected by the opinions of strangers. You know, how I see myself, my emotional well-being, my sense of self these are not in any way affected by the opinions of people i don't know you know like ideally an individual sense of self should be informed by family community friendship spirituality creativity health and not comments on social media
0: how would you say creating this documentary affected you and changed or altered your perspectives in any way and in particular, the creation of what you term your existential portfolio.
5: Well, I mean, I, when I was growing up, I assumed, and this is really sort of the central, I guess, thesis of the documentaries, I assumed that if I had a record contract, and if I had an audience of people willing to listen to my music, and if I had an apartment in New York, that I would be the happiest person in the world. And then I was given those things and even more and the happiness didn't ensue and it was very confusing to me and and slowly over time i realized like external things are not capable of fixing internal issues you know if you have psychological issues existential issues external validation materialism won't won't fix them and it's a hard lesson to learn because obviously we live in a world that just reinforces the idea that if you want to be happy, you need to have material success. You need to have, you know, fame. You need to have celebrity. But then that's why in the beginning of the documentary, we flash to pictures of Ernest Hemingway, Kurt Cobain, Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, you know, people who had similar assumptions that fame was going to fix everything. And then when it doesn't, you're left very scared and confused. Um, and the, making the documentary was a form, almost like a form of art therapy, where you sort of externalize yourself and your issues and in the process gain a degree of perspective and clarity.
0: What do you hope your documentary enlightens people about you and understanding both you and your music?
5: Well, it's funny. I don't... <laughs> even though the documentary is about me, it's got my name on it, my hope is more that people, one, because the documentary, I believe, is quite honest, that people maybe are able to find some space and honesty around their own issues that they might be ashamed of. Um, and also that maybe individually or even collectively we start to really question all these collectively held assumptions about external things fixing our internal issues. Like, because deep down, I think we all know that fame more often than not destroys people. Um, That, you know, great wealth isolates you from people and is sort of inherently unethical. You know, so I'm more hoping that those issues are addressed as opposed to, anybody thinking differently about me. Like, I'm just the, you know, I'm almost the test subject of the documentary as opposed to, you know, like a traditional star of a film.
0: And what do you feel is most misunderstood about you?
5: Uh, Well, according to my friends, because I have very little objectivity or perspective about myself, according to my friends, the biggest misunderstanding is that people think that I'm not funny, and at least my friends seem to think that I'm pretty funny. Granted, they might just be polite or nice, they're my friends, but uh, I guess the, a lot of people might think of me as being overly serious and unrelentingly serious, and I'm probably guilty of that, but you know, presumptuously I think I also have the capacity to be funny at times too.
0: And when Moby looks in the mirror, what does he see? <laughs>
5: someone who has been robbed of his birthright of hair. Um, You know, I see a middle-aged bald guy who is getting older every day and um, I see a few facial tattoos that have meaning and significance for me but are fading with time. Um, I see someone who is a very messy human work in progress. Um, And then I see someone who has teeth that have been stained by a lifetime of drinking tea and coffee.
0: (laughs) And how do you feel the many anxieties and stress in your life that we see in the film connects to your music and fuels your musical inspiration?
5: Well, music for me is refuge. You know, it's, I mean, music can serve so many purposes. You know, it can be exciting, it can be calming. And I know I'm stating the obvious, and I apologize, but for me, the act of making music is a refuge. Um, The act of releasing music, talking about it, playing music, these are, I don't even see it as a commercial activity anymore. You know, I don't even think of it as my career. It's just this you know, for lack of a better way of describing it, it's like a spiritual practice and a refuge. Um, you know, I work on music regardless of whether people listen to it. I release music and don't. Ex- ex- I expect very little from it except that I get so much joy and satisfaction from the act of making music and playing music.
0: And what are you thinking about creatively for the future or right now?
5: Well, my main job because in a way like i love making music i love making movies i love writing books but my main job is as an animal rights activist like that's my that's my duty that's my actual like the thing that i think about in the morning when i'm waking up is how to create a world where animals are not used by and for humans you know not just for the animal's sake but for ours, you know, I originally became a vegan and an animal rights activist because I love animals. But as time has passed, I've come to realize, like, oh, animal agriculture is destroying us, you know, causing climate change, causing pandemics, deforestation, antibiotic resistance. And so that's my main goal. Like, if I had to focus on one thing for the rest of my life, it would be trying to be an effective animal rights activist. Like in a way that's that's a cause that's more important than not just the other things I'm working on, but it's also more important than my own life. Like it's the thing that I'd be I'm willing to give up my life for if if needed.
0: And is there anything else you're working on or thinking about doing down the road?
5: Well, I mean, I I love making music and I hope to continue to make music and release records and videos and I have a weird very small little film and TV production company, and we want to keep making things um, ideally without creating gratuitous content like I, i'm a I sometimes love gratuitous content, but I feel like art and creativity at its best you know can not just be superfluous or gratuitous but can actually somehow address, you know, some of the issues that are in such desperate need of being addressed.
0: And any last word on why people should see Moby-Doc?
5: Um, (laughs) I, I mean, the only thing I can say is that apart from me, there are only two featured people in the movie, which are David Lynch and David Bowie. So Even if you don't like me, I think it's worth watching it just to see David Lynch and David Bowie.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for calling into our show.
5: Oh, my pleasure. It's a great pleasure speaking with you.
0: Okay, bye. Bye. And Moby Doc, along with Moby's new album, Reprise, are out and release this week.
5: Hello Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a
0: shout out. New York, New York. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and,
3: you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protect that.
0: Coming up next on Arts Express.
6: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Let's play a game. I'm going to name a few plays and movies. You tell me what they have in common. The Odd Couple, The Gin Game, Angels in America, Hurly Burly, The Real Thing, Barefoot in the Park, Streamers, Working Girl. And I'll throw in Silkwood. What do they share in common? Okay. Well, pat yourself on the back if you got it right. They were all directed by Mike Nichols. And I'll bet at least one of those titles had you going, hey, I didn't know he directed that. And of course, I didn't even mention The Graduate Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Heartburn, Carnal Knowledge, or so many others. Clearly, Mike Nichols is one of the great American directors. And now his life has been beautifully told in a comprehensive new biography titled Mike Nichols, a life. I'm very happy to be speaking with author Mark Harris. Hi Mark. Hi Jack. Mark, I really as I told you, I loved your book. I read it twice and your wonderful book covers Mike Nichols' working and personal lives and gossip from beginning to end. But I was also so happy to see that you didn't shy away from talking about Nichols' philosophy of acting and directing either. It's really quite an accomplishment. In some sense, Mike Nichols' most brilliant character was Mike Nichols himself. How did he come to the U.S., and how did being an immigrant inform his character?
3: Well, Mike Nichols' story begins as so many early and mid-century American stories begin, which is that he was uh, essentially a refugee. He came at the age of seven from Berlin to New York in 1939 with his younger brother. His father was already here. Uh, His father was a a Russian Jew and his mother was a German Jew. She came a year later. They were fleeing and hoping to build a new life in America. And then he had a couple of more strikes against him very early on. He lost all of his hair as a result of a vaccination reaction when Mm -hmm. he was about four years old. And so he came to America not looking like other children, not sounding like other children, and then lost his father to leukemia at a very young age. So there's nothing in the early years of Mike Nichols that suggests the life to come
6: and of course, Nichols is on the defensive, your young kid going to school, and he had the additional handicap to overcome of not having any hair and his father was not particularly nice to him, was he.
3: Well, certainly not about the hair loss. The, yeah. Mike wasn't allowed to have a hairpiece until he was in his early teens, uh, the idea being that it was something he just might as well get used to. In some ways, those strikes against him began to shape who Mike Nichols was going to become because as an immigrant child, he, he had to watch other kids very closely you know, to, to mm. understand what – a popular kid looked like, what an American kid looked like, what a kid who other kids wanted to be looked like. And also, because of the hair loss, he had to sort of compose an external self every morning before going out to face what he correctly imagined would be an often hostile world. That got easier once he had the opportunity to wear a hairpiece, but it was still a matter of gluing it on in the morning and taking it off at night and using this kind of foul-smelling acetone. I mean, Mike Mm -hmm. was different from other kids. And and the way in which he had to prepare himself to face every day was his first stab at acting. Mm -hmm. And acting led in a really fascinating way to his career as a director.
6: And when does he first get involved with the theater seriously? He goes off to college?
3: He goes off to college, and really surprisingly, for someone who was so self-conscious about his appearance, his instinct very quickly is to connect with the theater scene at the University of Chicago and with Paul Sills, and it just happened to be that that was a moment when both at the University of Chicago and in the city of Chicago, there was a really fertile, exciting, developing theater scene. And and so uh, in college, Mike... Starts to take classes, becomes very, very interested in improv, which is a new thing then, and then becomes part of a a growing theater troupe called The Compass Players. And that's where he first uh, really starts to work with Elaine May.
6: What did he learn doing improv?
3: Well, I think he learned just an immeasurable amount that served him as a director from, in particular, not just from doing improv, but from working with Elaine May. Uh, From her, he learned to think on his feet, to be inventive. She was the one who said to him, every scene should be either negotiation, a fight, or a seduction, and when in doubt, seduce. And a very interesting complementary dynamic uh, over the years that they worked together developed between them because mike felt that of the two of them elaine may was by far the most inventive he often said that if you gave her a character she would instantly know not one thing that the character would say but a dozen and she mm-hmm. could live inside that character and mike by his own admission did not feel that that was his strength. So Uh the skill that he developed to balance it out was he got really good at understanding when it was time to move from one beat of a sketch to the next. He got really good at listening Mm -hmm. to the audience and understanding the difference between say when they were silent because they were bored and when they were silent because they were in suspense, waiting to see what was going to happen next. He started to develop, pacing skills and a really deep understanding of narrative that ended up serving him very well as a director. And the other thing that happened as a result of his work with Elaine May was that he became really acutely sensitive to the importance of truth in performance. Hmm. He and Elaine May both said, we're never going to chase a laugh. We always want to come by the laugh honestly. And and for Mike, an honest laugh meant, meant that someone in the audience would look at what they were doing and say, oh, wait, I know that guy. I am that guy. I've done that in a situation that's very different, but I didn't think anybody ever noticed. That kind of feeling that you were getting to witness a privileged, private moment that someone had captured that you had never really named, but you recognized once you saw it. That's something that Mike loved as a director to draw out of his actors, and it really became a hallmark of his style as a director to do that. And he
6: was also not just a a wonderful improv actor, but he was a very good actor in in the classics well he was playing lucky in waiting for godot at that time which has got to be one of the most difficult roles in the canon
3: that that moment when he when he does beckett you know (laughs) in his 20s in the 1950s uh it's it's a a sort of glimpse at the road not taken um what if what if mike had become a a sort of classical actor instead of a director that certainly could have happened
6: but here's the thing, Mark, that I, I really try to wrap my head around about Mike Nichols and the story that you tell. Elaine May and Mike Nichols, they decide they're going to come to New York. And almost immediately, they're opening for Mort Saul, And within six months, they're they're at the Blue Angel. They're the toast of the town. They're being written up in the New Yorker. They're on Jack Parr, Steve Allen, that, that quickly. And how did it happen so fast? Something must have been going on
3: under the surface. That was something I really tried to understand as I was working on the book. But it really was possible to... Become an overnight success back then. We we think it's a cliche, but yeah. um, if it happened for Nichols and May, astonishingly fast, they got to New York in September or October of 1957. Started playing at the Village Vanguard and and then the Blue Angel almost immediately. And by the end of that year, just a couple of months later, they had their first appearance on a late night TV show, and you know. Because there were only uh, a few networks back then, it was really possible to get discovered on television in a way. If you made Mm. a successful appearance on a show, on the right show, on the right night, when tens and tens of millions of people happened to be watching, you could be suddenly famous. And they're hilarious, and they still stand up. You
6: look at them, even though the subjects are a little dated, the relationship between them and the comedy is just... Hysterical and, and will be timeless. I think.
3: I think so because the kind of comedy that they were doing, which was about people's insecurities and vanities and pretensions and little face-saving gestures, that mm-hmm. really never goes out of style. You know, the they they go to extreme places. One of their specialties was starting with an ordinary situation and then mining it for whatever absurdity was there, but that start the ordinary situation was very ordinary a water cooler conversation between two colleagues or a pair of teenagers in the front seat of a car or a mother who guilt trips her son for not calling more often (laughs) and the sketches go amazing places but partly because they started so humbly you know performing in bars in chicago um the sketches had to begin from a place where you only needed two people on stage and you couldn't really have props more than, you know, maybe a couple of bar stools. So you couldn't come up with some elaborate scenario that needed a lot of staging. It had to be based Mm. on who these people were. And I think that's one reason the sketches are so still relatable and, and so funny still.
6: And pretty darn quickly, they've got their own show on Broadway. Uh, an evening with Nichols and May, and everybody's coming to see them.
3: Right. Uh, Nichols and May on Broadway was the kind of show that not only did everybody want a ticket, every celebrity wanted a ticket. It was kind of the cool show to go to on Mm. Broadway that season. Mike, who was a very gregarious, social person he really took to that. So the range of people that he met during that period was just extraordinary. And and in many ways, it led directly to not his first stage success, but some years later to his first movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Because Richard Burton was doing Camelot in the theater just across the alley mm-hmm. from Nichols and May, and he and Nichols became friends. I love the story that you told that Burton originally wants to play
6: Othello, and he wants Mike Nichols to play Iago. <laughs>
3: what What did Burton understand about Nichols' darker side? To Burton's credit, he knew that something was there. He probably, <laughs> he probably understood that, among other things, Mike was incredibly ambitious. But uh, mm. although I don't think he was a particularly envious or jealous person, uh, he was certainly ambitious – Okay, so when when does Nichols first start directing, seriously? He he and Elaine May end their partnership in 1962, and a year later, almost on a whim, he gets the offer to direct the play by Neil Simon that becomes Barefoot in the Park. Mm-hmm. And he says that, you know, really, from the first day he walked into the rehearsal room, he felt strongly that that was what he was meant to be doing, that, that it was instant comfort for him, and, and also a sense of of purpose, uh, really a sense of, of understanding that this this was to be his role. You have
6: a wonderful quote from Nichols as your epigraph. What is this really when it happens in life? Not what is the accepted convention, but what is it really like? And I just love that because that's really
3: what fueled his whole career. Yeah, I I thought that it was a beautiful... A description by him of his job. I mean, he said that the two things that a director had to keep his eye on were what what is this really like? Whatever situation he's putting on stage. So what is it really like combined with a director's other mission, which is to make you always feel what happens next? And Mm. I think you see that in Nichols's work over and over again because the first, the first idea is about credibility, realism, um, believability. And the second one is about pace and narrative and momentum. And, Mm -hmm. and in his best work, you see those two things go hand in hand.
6: I never saw the original production of Barefoot in the Park, only the film, which Nichols didn't direct. But you have Neil Simon saying at a rehearsal, "I don't know if I should be watching this. It's too private, too intimate. I feel like I'm eavesdropping." And Nichols says, "Good, then it's working."
3: It was Neil Simon's own play, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and it's funny because if you read some of those early plays that Nichols did, uh, like barefoot in the park like the odd couple on paper they don't necessarily seem like anyone would call them revolutionary but from everyone who saw those original productions the staging really was something that people had not seen before in broadway comedy in terms of its specificity and in terms of its attention to detail and realism and and in terms of the way nichols would create physical actions for the characters that would deepen the lines or play interestingly against the lines or give a new meaning to the lines. That was all very, very new. Hmm.
6: I love what he said to Alan Alda, who was a a young actor in The Apple Tree at the time. You kids think relating is the icing on the cake. It's not. It's the cake.
3: (laughs) You know, he he said that in 19... Sixty-six, I think, which is when they were in uh, rehearsals for the Apple Tree, and almost forty years later, when he's back directing Spamalot on Broadway, uh-huh. you, you hear him say a very similar version of that to the cast, uh, even in something as fanciful and sketchy and kind of throwaway as Spamalot. He was always saying, you know. Remember that we're telling a story. Remember to connect to each other on stage. Don't just aim everything out at the audience. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're playing scenes with people.
6: Nichols thought that uh, David Rabe's anti-military play Streamers was the best work he had done on stage. Now, I saw that production of Streamers at the small Mitzi Newhouse, and I'll never forget two things about it, one small and one big. The small thing was... and I knew this was a good director the small thing was one of the characters goes out to say he's going out to shave or something and he takes his little shaving kit with him and when he comes back in he comes back with the shaving kit under his arm and he still has a dollop of shaving cream by one of his sideburns and I thought oh man what a detail and the second thing that Amazed me about that. The big thing was the actor who played Carlisle, I think it was Dorian Harewood. Right. I actually thought that this must have been an understudy or somebody who had gotten confused where he was because he brought so much immediate danger into that room. I don't think there was a person in that audience who didn't think that that actor might jump off the stage and stab them. I mean, it was that crazy and alive.
3: Right. I mean, that I did not see that production. Um, I was, I was too young for it. And, and it's, it's really a tragedy that it was not, you know, preserved on, on videotape, but, but among people who saw it, the, the way Mike staged that show is really the stuff of legend. And, and it, it has to do with exactly what you're talking about, that, What he felt was the necessity of putting you in that room, in that hothouse atmosphere, so that you really felt almost trapped in the theater, like that there was not a a wall protecting you from the danger that was happening on stage. So let's move to film. He meets Richard Burton, and
6: amazingly, they ask him to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for his very first film. How does that happen? And that's all the time we have for this week. Tune in next time for our concluding part where we have more fascinating talk about the film directing career of Mike Nichols, including his direction of Angels in America. Mark Harris's book is Mike Nichols' A Life, published by Penguin Press. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.